How is Russian imperialism similar to and different from other imperialisms that we know? What are its key traits with regard to the question of difference and sameness, domination, nation-states and mythology of the past? You are listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. My co-host is Tetyana Oharkova, Ukrainian scholar and journalist who heads the International Department of the Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. So let's talk about Russian imperialism. This is a topic widely discussed, of course, right now. And we have uh, several several attempts on, on this podcast explaining Ukraine to address this issue. I can refer uh, to my conversations, uh, my conversations with Vera Toltz, um, a British, a British scholar and expert with Russian origins and an expert on, on Russian imperialism, also with... Uh, Olesya Ostrovska, the head of uh, Mestetsky Arsenal, Art Arsenal in Kyiv. Also, we talked about this a little bit with Tim Snyder, with Annapolbaum. But let's let's try right now maybe to, to develop it a little bit. And uh, we entitled our conversation, uh, like we, we will try to um, enumerate some key points of the Russian imperialisms, right? So one of the points for me is that it, it, there is a certain difference between uh, maritime empires, European empires, which were most of them in the Western Europe were maritime empires, sea empires, and the Russian continental empire. And uh, one of the key differences is that the maritime empires are colonizing the distant people, the distant Uh, nations and they are distant in geography. They are also distant in ethnicity, in ethnicity, also distant culturally, and therefore this question of difference, the distance and difference, became the tool of domination. So the difference became a tool of domination, and the European, um, you know, colonial colonialist or imperialist in the 19th century, maybe the 20th century as well, was telling to the colonized that you are different than myself and you will never become the same as me. And this difference was interpreted in, in the hierarchical terms. But the difference is actually vertical, not horizontal. Uh, so the idea of difference was actually uh, the tool of domination. And the whole uh, intellectual history of the 20th century in the Western world is a, is a history of how you make this difference not vertical but horizontal, how you make it um, into a tool of diversity rather than the tool of domination. Whereas Russian imperialism is uh, a continental empire, Russia is a continental empire, uh, also Ottoman Turkey was a continental empire, Habsburg Empire was continental, so there are other continental empires as well. But the thing is that uh, Russians were colonizing the close people and uh, close geographically, And with regard to and when we take Ukrainians and Belarusians, also close ethnically and linguistically. And, uh, 
and and in this situation, not the concept of difference, but the concept of sameness became a tool of domination. Russian colonizers were telling to Ukrainians that not that Ukrainians, you are different than me and you will never become the same as me, but he was or she was telling you are the same as me and you will never get a chance to become different than me. And uh, if you become different than me, you are a fascist, right? Yes, exactly. But I would also question the term of colonizing and colony regarding this Russian empire because I think it it has a slightly, maybe profoundly different sense of view because when we talk about this classic colonization, maritime Colonization, this is about how developed countries go somewhere far from their territories and they are colonizing uh, properly uh, these nations. How these so-called developed so, countries. So-called, right? so-called, yeah. But, but in a way, what was happening in here in our geography, this is not about that uh, there were separate lands and like uh, Ukraine or Belarus or any kind of uh, former republics was a kind of uh, uh, unknown place or unknown territory for the metropoly quite differently differently because um the the, the the heart of this empire started back in kiev so in the ukrainian territory so i would say that even the notion of colonizing quite be questioned might be questioned and maybe uh, it's better to use to, to, to say this term of empire. So empire, this is not in terms of gaining territory, but in terms of gaining uh, power, of gaining control sometimes and quite frequently by violence. So this is not about uh, only about territory. This is about stating that the center of the empire is here just in our place where we are, Moscow, for example, and you belong you belong to us, but in, in terms you are subordinate to us. This is not about gaining territories only. And in this way, uh, this is a quite a, a different uh, empire, uh, a different empire from what, what, what we call these, uh, these notions, and this uh, relationship of power uh, and of subordination is maybe the heart, the, the key problem, the key um, characteristics of this Russian empire. But every empire is about subordination. Every empire is about domination. I just uh, don't understand what you mean exactly. Yes, but um, if yeah, this is about domination on the on the on this first stage when you talk about maritime empires. This is about discovery. This is about using the resources. This is about. Uh, um, making some use of these uh, colonies. But Russian Empire, this is not only about that. This is only stating that uh, uh, just we are, that we are in the center, we are the center of uh, of this empire and you are in a subordinate. That's why, for example, if, if you take Ukrainians uh, and Russians, um, why, for example, uh, Russians tend to call Ukrainians uh, smaller brothers? So smaller brothers to make them bigger and other bro- still brothers, but smaller brothers in a kind of a subordinate position. So this procedure of assimilation you are talking about, I would agree that yes, indeed, they are trying to call yeah, to call Russians, everybody who belongs to this territory. Uh, and on the first stage, as Olena Stashkina put it one uh, in one occasion, Mm, uh, they call people, for, for example, Ukrainian Russians and Belarusian Russians and then Georgian Russians and then yeah, they erase this Belarusian, Ru- Ukrainian and Georgian and they become simply Russians. So they're trying to um, erase any kind of similarity. But when doing so, they would never 
they would never want to achieve it completely because you are always reminded that you are from Kiev. You are always reminded that you are from Tbilisi or whatever, so you are not from the center. So this assimilation procedure could be questions as well. So this assimilation, but look, you are you might you might become a better version of you, but you should forget about your origins. You should forget about your geography, about your city. You should move somewhere to Moscow and erase all what we call family memory, whatever. So uh, this assimilation it comes uh, with. Um, with this uh, obligation to forget about your identity. Yeah, I think that this is a very important point. So this is also the work with with time and with the past. And I think we will come back to this because um, amnesia is one of the key elements for integration with the empire. In order to become a, a value subject, a valid subject in the empire, you have to forget Right, and this is the difference with the maritime empires, and this is also the difference with, for example, racism, the biological racism which uh, was in in Western Europe, de- developing in Western Europe in the nineteenth century, uh, in the British discourse and practices, in the French, in the Belgian, and then uh, it came, as we know, to to Germany and to Nazi Germany. Uh, the biological racism says that you actually have no chance to cross the line you will never become another biological race. As Hitler was saying that, look, races are like species, biological species. If you're born fox, you will always be fox. If you're born wolf, you will always be wolf. Russian imperialism is different. That's true. Because it kind of gives you a chance, gives a chance to foxes to become wolves. Yeah, but the price of these uh, f- uh, foxes becoming wolves is exactly that you you stop being yourself. So, and but at the same time, there's another another side of the problem is that still in every empire Russia had, they still cultivated these exotic exotic images of uh, locals. You know, we experienced that with Ukrainians. So they were still. Um, uh, cherishing this image of Ukrainian folklore and folkloric uh, popular culture, um, which looked a kind of artificial and the same for for many other places of this empire, former empire, and um, stating that look, these people, this is a lower culture. So this is a kind of simple people. They are peasants. They are they are primitive, and the center, cultural center, and progress, real progress, historical progress, it takes place in the center. So they still um, put in some place to people to rep- remember, for example, all these competitions of dance or whatever in Soviet times. Also, all nations, all republics were presented, but in a way, in a kind of artificial way, and you know, just. Mm. Yeah, they, they were re- reduced to certain key elements that were repeated all the time and the, all the time. It's like uh, one of the key novels of the 20th century is uh, the the man without properties, right? And um, and here we can say that yes, you are allowed to have some properties, but maybe two or three. Like yeah. Ukrainians were allowed to. Uh, 
uh, to sing several uh, popular, uh, several national songs and maybe dance Hopak or something else. Georgians were also allowed to dance Lesginka and uh, everybody was, you know, reduced to a certain number of cliches. And right? this is precisely why the recent concert at, Lu- at Luzhniki in, in, in Moscow, there were a song... Uh, in Ukrainian, and many commentators were just uh, stupefied. Why in Ukrainian? So Russia is having the war against Ukraine. They they hate Ukrainian language. They they don't recognize the existence of Ukrainian identity, separate identity. Why why saying in Ukrainian? But precisely because they want to cultivate this kind of people, you know, like like these kids, like these children from Mariupol who survived in Mariupol. By the way, we know already the story of these these kids present at Luzhniki at Luzhniki which were thanking this guy, this military guy, for saving their lives. And we know already that these children, they are really from Mariupol. And uh, some of them live in Mariupol, and they they made this journey to, to, to the capital just to make the speech. And one boy, he traveled from Czech Republic. So he was already abroad, and so he traveled to there. And, 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 and they cherished such opportunities to present as if uh the their colonies so called colonies but so the subordinate territories they are so much thankful for for the center to be able to be with them and still have some save some some several characteristic of their culture the same attitude to language we would not say that ukrainian was Absolutely banned in Soviet times, for example, it still existed. But it was like you know, this it, it's it's so fun, yeah, just to have some some national uh, national traits, some national songs, some songs in Ukrainian. Why not? But just in every occasion, you were said that uh, this is a a simple uh, culture. This is a people's culture, primitive culture, and all. All what's best is happens in Moscow in the center, and it happens in Russian. Yeah, so these uh, these traits, which would we would call the trait and amnesia, amnesia as as your your gate, you know, to to the center, and you know the, the stories of our parents of many. Uh, this generation, I think post-Second World War generation is very important because this generation actually moved to cities in large numbers and they were uh, they were getting higher education in big cities and they were, this higher de- education was completely in Russian and they were changing the language and they were forgetting uh, that they are Ukrainian. And right now we have a very interesting process of these, our parents coming back to, to the origins. So amnesia is... One of these traits, right? Just one more, one more story about that. Look, for example, for Ukrainian language, it was admitted that yes, Ukrainian language exists and Ukrainian literature. So you, you can talk about Shevchenko, whatever, any kind of also in Ukrainian. But if it comes to mathematics or physics, you know, to to this, uh, to such such kind of sciences, it would never be in Ukrainian. So it'd be in in Russian to computer science. And until now, we still have professors who have problems with teaching all these materials um, subjects in, in Ukrainian. So Ukrainian or any other language, yes, it exists. It, there are some tradition for that, some folklore, some 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 people talking it. But this is not about the future. So this is about the past. They were cultivating these um, um, identities, like something coming from the past. 
and never linked to the future. And condemned to the past. So one of these ideas that we, we started actually, and we talked in this podcast many times, that uh, one of these elements is actually not that much to silence the so-called subaltern, right? As, as, as people analyzing this imperialist literature saying the subaltern that doesn't speak, that colonized doesn't speak, he, he or she is deprived of, of words, of language. No, you can say that Russian imperialism actually agrees that these subordinate nations can speak and therefore there are poems like and there are there, there, there are literary texts like Mutsiri by Lermontov or I don't know Taras Bulba maybe by Gogol. It, it's still a question whether it's colonial literature or not. But they are condemned to the past. They they are said that they actually have no future. And this is very interesting. So you are condemned to the past. You're obliged to forget about your past. You can keep some of the elements of the memory, but very, very, very much selected by the imperial center. But your future is, is definitely has nothing to do with the past. So let's summarize. We also, we already outlined two traits of Russian imperialism. The first is that not the difference, but the idea of sameness is the tool of domination. And, and therefore, it's not that easy, for example, it's not biological determinism or something like that. It's, it's a work with, with assimilation. And the second trait that in this work of assimilation, amnesia, uh, you're forgetting the past plays a, a very important role. Let's talk about the third element. And I think the third element is, is connected to them because uh, in a sense you can say that the this Western imperialism was actually, especially in the 19th century and partially in the 20th century, were, uh, they claim, was deeply related to the idea of progress, a European idea, mod modern idea of progress. And they were actually saying that, uh, well, the colonized nations don't have future. Uh, they are unable to, 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 to be in progress. And therefore, the colonizers are actually having the future. they owning the future, while the colonized don't own the future. And therefore, the West is bringing the future to the colonized. So in some aspect, the similar idea of the Russian imperialism, right? We, we just talked about it. But there is a one important difference, I think, is that when Russians are addressing Ukrainians, they actually are saying that not only Russians own the future, but Russian Russians own the past of the Ukrainians. And uh, this is a very important thing because this is what uh, my friend Alexander Sushko uh, uh, once called uh, um, annexation of history, annexation of the past. When, for example, the, 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 the princes of Kiev, Volodymyr, Yaroslav, uh, are actually named as Russian princes. And and this came a little bit later in the Russian historiography. So the idea that actually stayed in Kiev was a Russian state is in itself a crazy idea, right? Yeah, let's discuss it more in detail. So two parts of this. So they're uh, annexing the future, stating that other parts of the empire, they don't have future. And in this particular case with Ukraine, which might be different with uh, other geographies of this uh, previous empire, because this is true for Ukraine, but it might not be true for 
example, Belarus or any other part. But so Ukraine in relation with Russia is in a particular position because not only they were talking that our progressive idea, be it, for example, a communist idea. Look, if what if we read what Lenin was writing in his time, he was not writing about <clears throat> the possibility to create this new um, progressive communist system in, 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 in the Soviet Union only. He was talking about, about international uh, victory of this ideology. So this was a way to present that we are, we are the most progressive ones. We are, we know how, how to do things and, uh, we should make others follow us. <clears throat> this was the idea, and that's why they were trying to impose this idea on the territories they controlled at that very moment. So it was a, uh, it was a real battle for the future, and they considered it to be the best uh, way for humanity. They were wrong. Now we know. Uh, it slightly changed when Ukraine, uh, when Soviet Union collapsed. Because uh, f during first decades after uh, Soviet Union collapse, they, but I, I guess they were kind of disoriented in the Yeltsin times because they had to follow the democratic capitalistic model. Uh, it gave some um, strange results because, yes, it was a capitalism, but there was a lot of injustice, a lot of insecurity, a lot of poverty as well for the whole population. The same happened in Ukraine, so this uh, shared experience. So this transition period was extremely, extremely um, painful for, for, for Russians and for Ukrainians as well. But, but, but the future development shows that then when Putin came to power in early... And 2000s, uh, exactly in 2000, he start, they started to rebuild this image of, of a strong nation and of a strong um, and progressive. So they changed their ideology uh, once again, but they were talking about, by the way, dec decadent Europe. They were talking about uh, degenerescence degenerating Europe, degenerating values. And even now, if you listen attentively to what Putin says, he, he's stating about the decline and decline and fall of Western uh, Europe and Western civilization. He's talking about as if Russia would be present a kind of vital force and uh, and if, as if it possesses a future. And that's why precisely he is referring so much to developing countries, because what we call developing countries to these other countries, because as if uh, the Europe's time is already over and uh, these societies are degenerating, uh, they are in the, in the process of decline and fall, and the future belongs to to the alternative. So now Russia presents itself but also with this part of the world, which is uh, not Western civilization, as a future. So they tend to be in the future. And they exclude from that, you know, everything else. Yeah, but this is a, a play with this future, you know, uh, an, an interesting play that actually we see that the Russian regime is now very old. And we see on those people, and I will say that this is, Putinism is a kind of a, Brezhnevism 2.0. It's it's a regime with of, a, of an old leader. It's a regime with old elites who are in the 60s and the 70s, and they look at at Ukraine with the relatively young leader and and young people around him, and saying, "Well, this is decadent." They look at Europe 
with relatively young leaders. Look at the Prime Minister of Finland. Look at the President of uh, of uh, France. Look at the Prime Minister of of United Kingdom. Uh, look at many examples. In many cases, you have young leaders, and they're saying, "Well, this is decadent. This have this has no energy." But this is not new. The problem is that in this argument, this is not new. The same was said by Russians 100 years ago, and and this is this is very important to think. But let me come back to this third point. So, the the thing is that. In this, you know, imperialistic vision, actually, empires always say that, look, future is ours. We bring future to you. You are only, you know, condemned to 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 be in the past. In this um, imperialist logic, there is something wrong in in Russian story because they are saying, okay, okay, we probably bring you a future, but your past is actually your origin. We own your origin. When, when they're saying about when about they're Ukraine. Uh, talking to Ukraine, when they're saying about Ukraine, so this this is a story which actually tells us how um, non-confident in themselves they are, because if they need this origin, why would they need this origin? Because they have all this empire: Peter the First, Catherine Second. Uh, Alexander I, uh, victory of the Napoleon against Napoleon, okay, the Second World War, they have this myth about victory over Hitler, although we know that, uh, I mean, Ukrainians and Belarusians' contribution to that was bigger than the Russians' contribution, but still, why would they need to go to these origins and say, and steal this origin, actually? That's that's a very interesting, maybe psychoanalytical question, right? This is conquering the past. So let us conquer the past and let's argue that uh, uh, I would agree that this is about annexation of the past, annexation of the memory, family memory and history. So in centuries, uh, thinking in terms of empire means that they everything belongs to us. And even now, if you, if we, if you listen attentively to what Putin says, he really considers Kiev to be the motherland of the of of Russia and not of Ukraine. So as if so we were just doesn't explain how it functions. Another very important thing, in a recent speech, in a recent comment, Putin was talking about the future eventual uh, decomposition of Russia. And he was trying to make Russians feel afraid of it. And he said something like, look, we might... Uh, become a number of different people from Ural and from Moscow, from ever, and might maybe parts of it could join this European civilization. But we will no, be no more Russia. And the rhetoric is quite clear. He was trying to make Russians afraid of that. So they are uh, they were referring to people who would never accept the idea to live in on a small territory and a territory who belongs to a bigger family. I don't know, based on values, on, on I don't know, human dignity, human rights or whatever. No, so this idea of, of this uh, empires or big country uh, is so um, dear, so close, so understandable for Russians that he was he's trying to make people afraid. What's going on now? 
Yes, and I think, uh, and, and everybody is afraid of it um, in the whole world, in Russia, in the Western world, every, everywhere. And Russian liberals as well. And uh, Russian liberals, and by the way, uh, there was this these points by Navalny from prison, some of these points were, I mean, very good, they were saying that yes, Actually, we need to come back to the borders of 1991. That means that he, uh, Crimea's annexation is, is unacceptable, etc. But there was nothing about the imperialization of Russia. I, I, I didn't, I didn't uh, read anything about that. So this is a big question, right? Um, and uh, I, I do think that this question is actually needs to be raised and needs to be asked because, uh, because history is moving slowly in that way and i i do think that this is this is where we are going because russia is is the last empire in europe and uh, others other empires have collapsed and went to another form of coexistence the fourth point let let's move to the fourth point so the first point was the the, the question of sameness and difference the second uh, trait was the question of amnesia and assimilation the third one was um was about um, uh, annexing the past. About the the origin, the annexation of the past. The fourth one is about the nation state, and and here we come to an interesting thing: is that Western empires, you know, they first consolidated themselves. Okay, there is a big difference, and we always discuss it. I mean, what is what is the real difference between the nation and the empire? Because nations are also constructed through conquest, you know, the first there are tribes, you know, they not necessarily speak the same language. So uh, th- there is this nation, national mythologies, which are, of course, very wrong. Uh, and there is this mythology of social contract, which are, which are always also wrong. So in, in, in the construction of nations, there is many things which are which are can also be compared with with imperialism you know when when the french you know established the 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 language of ile de france as the official language of all france it was also kind of a, a act of violence we all understand that so th- th- this difference is not that that obvious but i do think i mean that that the first uh, we we can talk about we can talk about nation states initially um as uh, as they 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 kind of uh, um integrate the the tribes the dialects which are more or less close to each other uh, historically or, or or linguistically and we see the you know construction of the nation states in the in the western europe and then we see the imperial stage right so with the nation states it very often it comes like like a fight against uh, for its own identity against somebody else um in in some places we see that it 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 relates to the idea of being an underdog this is a story of germany this is a story of uh, of britain as well and then coming to the first place but with Russia, we see that this imperial idea is is actually at the origins of the Russian statehood. Because if we move back to the 15th century, the the you know the when the when the influence of the of the remnants of the Mongol Empire were 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 going back, were going down. 
you have this idea in the late 15th century of uh, Moscow, the third Rome, from the very start. So the global idea, that not just the idea that we build something local here, but the global idea. So I think that the difference, the real difference between the idea of nation state and the idea of empire is actually that nation states are thinking locally. Uh, and and they are they're really thinking in terms of their borders, whereas empires don't have borders. I always say that empire is is a polity which has a center but doesn't have borders, and uh, quite often they have real global agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite often they are related to religion, to the idea that we we move forward some religious idea. And uh, with with Russia, with Moscovy in the 15th century, we have this idea of the Third Rome, which is, I mean, crazy idea. I mean, how a provincial town somewhere in the north, I mean, how you can compare it with Rome and with Constantinople. So, and afterwards, all these elements, Russia tried to, to, to have this global idea. The Third Rome then, the rebranding of the Russian Empire with Peter I when it was rather going into Europe and not into Asia. Then you can say that in the 19th century, the global idea of Russia was the fight against the revolution and democracy. Then in the 20th century, it was upside down and it was a, a fight for revolution and against you know capitalism, etc. And now it's the first time when they don't have a global idea anymore. Yes, but I would also I would um, definitely agree with the idea that Russians they cannot conceive any kind of state which is not linked to this empire. So for them the state means empire. So and it, this is true from the very origins, as you mentioned, from the 15th century, and up to now. And that's precisely why Putin was talking about the composition, and he was talking about the small regions. For them, it would be uh, exactly the the end of the the state. So the state of the empire would be the end of the state. So there is no difference for them between state and empire, even if they don't pronounce the word empire now. But but for them, uh, what they mean, uh, their country should be enormous. It must be enormous. It must be very big. Otherwise, this is not a state. So they just don't have these optics of that you can be a small country and you can have uh, clear borders and you can have neighbors and build kind of horizontal relationship with your neighbors. For them, I would say they are synonyms, state and empire, even if, you know, they don't pronounce the word empire, but they mean it. When they're talking about the the risks their country is running now, they're talking about the possibility to keep the whole country uh, together and when you listen to what Russian liberals say, even if they are somewhere, somewhere abroad, and they are mostly abroad, they are also very much afraid of any kind of ideas about the decomposition of of Russia, because for them it also means the end of the story, the end of the state. They cannot imagine. Uh, being uh, multiple states, nation states, and we do know that in Russia you have different ethnicities living together and different religious communities living together, like like Burets, we've seen them here in in, in Ukraine, Burets and uh, um, um, Christians and many others. So and uh, and even. Uh, Ethnically, they are different. But nevertheless, for them, the state means big country or empire, many parts. No this possibility for this big state, big, big empire, it means no state. It, 
existential risk and they treat any kind of the possibility to come back to national to um, states uh, as existential risk for their state yeah because they actually maybe passed from the uh, the uh, they actually have passed from the stage of a tribe of a tribalism to the stage of the imperialism never really going through the nation state uh, because nation state actually also another i think trait of a nation state is the you actually have people you have actually have populus you actually have a community which considers itself as a subject and therefore it can challenge the 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 tyrant interestingly when 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 i look on the names of the russian propagandists and and we quote many of them in our a cycle in our serious propaganda diary you often have non ethnically russian names and last names you have armenian names sometimes you have uh, uh, ukrainian names you have belarusian names you have some other names azerbaijan uh, so that means that people actually going into this into the center into this you know metropole and uh, as we said they they kind of a very easily try to assimilate uh assimilate and uh, erase their their uh, their identity so kind of a pass across this idea of the nation to to something else and uh, yeah this is this is one of the one of the important traits i think as well and just one detail which explains things about this war so we are um, we would agree i think everybody would agree that russia in this war is not conquering so the primary objective is not to conquer territories right so there's a huge country with a huge territories which are absolutely empty so no people living there they have huge resources they don't really need pragmatically they don't really need bakhmut right so we they don't even Kherson, they don't need it i mean practically there is no reason for them to be to to be um, to 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 gain territory at a price of uh, of their of their soldiers when they conquered here in ukraine when they when putin took this decision last year his idea was not to conquer a territory but to conquer this grandeur imperial grandeur this control i mean this is symbolic symbolic power and uh, i think he was not he would be he would agree for example to to put yanukovych here he, for example yanukovych or medvedchuk we don't care a kind of a pro russian ukrainian but in case of yanukovych he's ukrainian so and just leave leave Ukrainians alone so just his symbolic control over territory just some rights for russian language here just some um, less freedoms for ukrainians a lot of recognition then that the russia moscow is the center of all this and that's all so it was not about russians coming here I don't know to get property or to get resources or for Russian businesses to come invest here in Ukraine. Frankly, I don't think it was an issue at that moment. For him, it was important to reaffirm that Moscow is a center of this civilization, and um, it was not about conquering. And that's why, precisely one year ago, on the twenty-fourth of February, in his initial speech, he was saying, "We are not." 
our intention is not to conquer territories. And I think it's true. The, the idea was to conquer the whole Ukraine, to put somebody like Marionette, like, like Yanukovych or anybody else, and say, look, this is our country. And just regard, and then it, it doesn't mean that there will would be soldiers everywhere in the country. It doesn't mean it would be a real occupation like we've seen in Kherson or whatever. They had never resources to control that. Just to say that you are uh, decapitated, you belong to us, and the, these are rules, and you are you are just Russia. But it doesn't mean that they would do something specific with Ukraine. Yeah, that's very interesting. And you know what? It's, uh, you know, Russian culture throughout the 19th century was actually telling in the early 20th century, and it, it regained its strength in the 21st century. It was telling Europe that, look, you're so materialistic, you're so focused on material things, and we are so spiritual. So the idea of spirituality, duchovnost, was very important for, is very important for Russian ideology. But what is happening here, they really don't care about material things, don't care about the land, don't care about resources. There is no resources in Ukraine which can interest Russia. That's that's ridiculous. And uh, this is indeed the war of so-called spirituality because everything which is ideas, which is imagination, which is fantasy, uh, is is the key reason of this war. Uh, and not some. And interestingly enough, actually. That's what, you know, people, pragmatic people were telling that, look, it's crazy for Russia to go to war in, in Ukraine because it would be against its interests. And it appears that this old Putin, who was so much, you know, pragmatic, cynical, and who is, actually doesn't care about his interests, doesn't care about the interests of Russia because he's totally in this imagination. He He, he goes in war which contradicts Russia's interests, but for this idea of greatness or whatever. And the technique to create these handicapped states like they did in Moldova, with Transnistria and with Georgia, uh, annexing a small part of a country. Yes, like in Transnistria, like in Ossetia, this, or in Crimea and Donbass, we understand that it was not to control this small, tiny part of the country, but to say to to make impossible the future of this country in in the European family or in in, in European in NATO structure, so just a uh, handicap like 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 uh, handicapped countries, they were always symbolic control of Russia. So um, cancel any kind of uh, alternative future. Say, look, these countries they belong to our zone of influence. So this was the case, and imagine if their uh, blitzkrieg would be successful in Kiev last year. I don't really think they will They will control, they will rob the country, they will control the country, they will just put their people here and they, would, they will use for maybe some resources on some businesses, but the idea is not here. The idea is the symbolic control. And this is an imperialistic idea. So just to say that our civilization... Is here and the center is Moscow, and we are the center of this civilization. Yes, and here we come to the last point, to the fifth point, uh, because if you if you think about this idea uh, until the end, that uh, what is behind this idea of greatness, behind this idea of greatness, how Russians are proving themselves they are great by occupation, by invasion, uh, 
by conquering others. And what is conquering occupation, etc.? It's violence. So that means that this is the big problem of, of this Russian idea of political life, that they identify greatness with power and power with violence. And actually, sila uh, in asilia, power or strength and violence are unfortunately the words which have the same root, the same uh, race in in Russian language and, by the way, in Ukrainian language as well. And this is, this is I think, uh, the problem. And this is one of, of your favorite topics, actually, is that violence, but violence with impunity. So the capacity to do violence, but to have no nothing in return. And I think this is one of the core of the Russian Empire. Yeah, this is a jungle rule. So, I mean, who is the strongest wins... Uh, uh, means all against all. It means that there is no balance, no uh, uh, no punishment, no legal system. I mean, international law, that's why international law precisely could be violated many times and nothing happens. This is precisely you are strong and you have the right to, to punish others, to aggress others, to humiliate others. And Russians, they do like... Uh, they are fixed, they are focused on this humiliation. And sometimes it's about self-humiliation. But they uh, they interpret in this terms of domination and humiliation everything, not only power, but this political system. And uh, look how they use language. If you, if you observe how they use language regarding, regarding politics, but also any kind of uh, other issues, they are always talking in terms of domination and humiliation. So for them... And this is precisely why uh, they are so um, so so ready to continue this war until they win, because they would never admit this kind of humiliation if they lose the war. And this is precisely why we see a lot of uh, normalization of violence normalization of violence in the in the Russian society. It doesn't mean that violence, it exists in any kind of society, right? So it can exist in Ukrainian society, in any kind of European society. It is, it, But it is balanced by some kind of judgment, by some kind of punishment, by some kind of uh, counterbalance to this violence. But what happens in, in, in Russian history, in Russian history in, in previous centuries, but now as well, this violence is becoming normal. So this is normal to, I don't know, to beat your wife or to beat your kids. This is normal to beat people even you're in the in the army, serving in the army, when you are in prison, when you are on the street or whatever. And w when you are powerful and you are president of this uh, of this empire, president of this empire, so the head of this state, you have the right to use violence against sovereign and independent countries. Just because you are stronger, just because you are bigger, just because you have nuclear weapons, as simple as that. And but the idea is that there is nothing, nothing uh, apart from this violence. So violence is considered as a key value. Violence is the source to power. Who is capable of extreme violence has respect. This is also was present in Ukraine in this, you know, what we call Donbass clan, Yanukovych, etc. People respected him because he was capable of violence, you know, the extreme violence. Violence not as a means to bring something, I don't know, 
even Soviet Union was considering violence as a as something that bring you know bright future, you know dictatorship of proletariat, equality. There was some ideas behind. There is no idea behind this Russian Empire. It's just pure violence, which has its goal actually. And what I think is that actually the the, the violence is the key goal of this war. It's not an instrument mm-hmm. of this war. It's the goal of this war to show this violence and. Uh, the lesser ideas they have, uh, the lesser ideology they have, mo- the more violence they will produce. They because uh, when you don't have any arguments, when you when you can't compete in ideas, you know, the violence is the only, the last resort. And I, I think this is also one of the important elements of this Russian imperialism as well. So I hope we try to explain something in this Russian imperialism. Five key traits. Uh, first, the, the sameness as a tool of domination and not difference. Uh, second, amnesia and assimilation as, as the imperial vehicles. Uh, third, the conquest of the past uh, and not only of the future. Fourth, bypassing this stage of the nation-state. And for, and uh, fifth, the violence is the goal and not as instrument. And uh, I hope this makes Russian imperialism a bit a bit more understandable. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yervolenko. My co-host is Tetyana Harkova. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and follow our resources. Ukraine World and Ukraine Crisis Media Center. You can also support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld and you can support our volunteer trips to the front line at paypal.ukraine.resisting.gmail.com Stay with us and stand with Ukraine. <laughs>